Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Everyone generalizes from their experience and takes forward what they've learned as a way of behaving. So when the avoidant child goes into preschool classroom, he doesn't bring his needs to the teacher. So he won't learn that she would respond. And in fact, if she comes and does something nurturing anyway, it's ambiguous or unfathomable to him. What is this? It makes no sense. I think many kids who show behavior problems in early childhood and get punished, they're doing so not because punishment is rewarding, but because this is understandable to them. The world is coherent in its messed up way. Therapist Uncensored brings you decades of experience with interpersonal psychotherapy, relational neuroscience, modern attachment, and anything else they think will be helpful in healing humans. Now, here are your co-hosts, Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Hey everyone, this is Ian, and today we are so pleased to bring to you our second conversation with one of really the most esteemed experts in attachment and child development, Dr. Alan Schroof. Now, our first conversation you can find in episode 56, though this is a standalone episode, so don't worry if you didn't hear it before. But let me tell you why we're bringing him back. We are so honored because Dr. Schroof is a bit assimilated. He and his team at the University of Minnesota have been assimilating decades of research, looking at attachment throughout the entire lifespan. We often talk about attachment through the infant perspective and through child development, but this is how does this develop and how does this impact us through our entire life? Now, his new book collects the results of this 40-year longitudinal study. And I'll tell you what, both Sue and I have read it, and it is so surprisingly and refreshingly personal. It's a, it really is a joy to read. It's entitled, A Compelling Idea, How We Become the Persons We Are. Now, this is his latest publication, but he has published well over 140 articles and seven other books on human development as well. Dr. Schroff is a professor emeritus of child development in the Institute of Child Development at the University of Minnesota. So he's also an internationally recognized expert on child development and research, and he has been an associate editor of the respected journals Developmental Psychology and Development in Psychopathology. So his awards are longstanding. They include everything from the Distinguished Scientific Contribution Award from the Society of Research and Child Development, the Bobby Ainsworth Award for Contribution to Attachment Research, 
and the G. Stanley Hall Award for Distinguished Scientific Contribution to Developmental Psychology. That was from Division 7 of the American Psychology Association, among many, many others. You're going to love the session, I promise. So before we jump in, just want to do a big shout out to our NeuroNerd Patreons. Thank you so much for your support. We're trying to stay ad-free. And for those of you out there that find this personally really helpful to your lives or to your practice and or to your practice, hopefully, and you can afford it because we know not everybody can, but if you can afford to help us out to continue to deepen your study and to send this science across the world to those who might not otherwise get it, please consider becoming a Patreon member at www.patreon.com backslash Therapist Uncensored. Okay, well, let's jump into it. It's with our really absolute privilege to bring to you our latest conversation between Dr. Alan Schroof and my co-host, Sue Marriott. So welcome back, Dr. Schroof. We're so happy to have you. It's good to be here. This is going to be an incredible reprise. We're going to be referring people to the first conversation, which I just re-listened to. It's a treasure trove of insight and observations from the world's you know, leading developmental psychologist telling us from his view what attachment's really about and what we need to be focusing on. So in this episode, I think that we're going to eventually get to talking about the process of change and, you know, really be speaking to therapists and to parents out there. But in order to do that, I thought we could just start with your new book. The new book is called The Compelling Idea. And what I was just really struck, because I'm so used to the academic writing, the change in tone. And so you're much more personal and vulnerable. And can you say a little bit about that book and how you came to shift that way and bring yourself into it so much? I wanted to write something that was more reader-friendly that people could relate to. As you know, that research study we did was massive, and it led to hundreds of journal articles and several books, but they were all a bit technical and tedious, and the information scattered everywhere. And the other thing about them, in academic writing, you're never allowed to be very personal. And there are some things when you write up a study, even when you give exact examples from children's lives, you have to protect their identity. You can't say everything. You need to disguise certain aspects of the case. And one thing I felt I could do in this book, in addition to putting in the anecdotes from our study, was talk about my own personal life, because I had no hesitance about sharing details there. And you know, one thing about being elderly that's great is I have no reason to hold things back from people. I started writing vignettes about my family history for fun, including this tale that I start with about my uncle discovering his mother dead, having been killed by my mother's father, my grandfather. And I had written that in a very long narrative form, and I'd done several things like that. And I started thinking that actually my life, like everybody else's life, is a story of development. And so I could, in this book, not only tell the story of development from our research study that we discovered, but the story of my own development and show how it's the same thing. The other motivation was my family clearly was dysfunctional, as families of many people trained in clinical psychology were. And those of us in therapy as well. Yes. I, I know this to be the case. Most of my friends are practitioners and 
Most of them came from dysfunctional families. And sometimes, you know, attachment theory has a reputation of being a pessimistic, fatalistic theory. If you were anxiously attached, you're doomed. If you were securely attached, well, then the world's your oyster. I knew that wasn't true. Our research studies showed that wasn't true. We found lots of evidence for change, and we will get into that. But I thought that as an attachment, quote, expert, I could do a good thing by talking about my own dysfunctional family and my own struggles and the fact that I believe I've achieved some level of sanity and functionality as an adult. So personally, I don't have a hopeless, fatalistic attitude about early experience. Not to diminish it, I'm almost 80 years old, I still wrestle with my early experience. And again, we'll come back to that too. So what does it mean that I've changed if I still have some of the same problems? And beginning to get to the questions of changing as adults and, of course, helping our <laughs> kiddos through this. God, think about COVID. You know, you talk about stressors and families and stress. Oh, my gosh, I've worried so much about mm-hmm. teachers and kids and parents with kids. Just as a reminder for folks, this is the culmination of a incredible study that started in 1974, I believe, and then the actual part in 76 So his group, Dr. Alan Shroof, has followed these samples of families from before they were ever born, which is crazy and fun, all the way to now. So we've got 40 years of longitudinal research looking at them from all kinds of different ways. So when he's sharing his opinions and things like that, he is coming from this incredible body of knowledge and data. So this is our, the master here. <laughs> so, it was, so can you explain to us about the development? Like, first of all, just how we learn to see ourselves and others, you know, mm-hmm. how it sets in to begin with, and then, you know, we can get to change. Maybe as a preamble, I'll just say a word about why we had to do the study the way we did. We wanted to know as all of your listeners want to know, does early experience have a special role in shaping who we are? It's a very plausible idea, but it's difficult to actually show that. So the kind of study that needed to be done was, yes, we had to assess early experience in great detail. We directly observed these infants 11 times before they were 18 months old. And we studied every aspect of their family, the the family social support and life stress and so forth. And we continue to study them, including later experience and other factors such as parent education and IQ and child cognitive development and peer relations. And the reasons you need to do all of that is that any finding you have that say early attachment predicts conduct problems, how do you know it was early attachment and not the later experiences? You need to measure the later experiences, too, and show that the early attachment still predicts above and beyond that. I won't go any further into that. People can look that stuff up. No, but I like it, though, because you're including people who might be listening with a bit of a skeptical ear about how in the world could something that happened, you know, 40 years ago have anything in the world. You know, everybody has a tough life. And lots of psychologists argued, I could point you to many books, that this would not be possible. When we started this study, it was thought that you couldn't predict anything from infancy. There was a little bit of maybe you could predict from infant temperament, but people had done longitudinal studies and failed to find anything. We would say because they didn't measure the right things, but I I won't go further into that. So that was the problem that we started out to study. 
luckily for us, Ainsworth had done her pioneering attachment research prior to when we started this study. She published her book on Uganda in 1967, and she had published a number of really convincing papers about attachment. And she had developed this procedure called the strange situation, where in a 20-minute laboratory assessment, you can get information that you know to be valid because Ainsworth and our study and other studies have linked it to what you would have seen had you been in the home observing. So we observed in the home, as I said, all those times. And we found, in fact, that our home observations of parent sensitivity and responsiveness predicted the quality of attachment in the strange situation, just as Ainsworth had done. So you have this method of capturing the history of the caregiving experience of the child in the first year or 18 months of life. In the case of our study, since it was a study of poverty families, mostly these were single parents. That reduces a bit of the complexity because, of course, you could have one kind of attachment with one parent and a different kind with another parent. Most of the infants we studied had one parent that simplified things. So we knew we measured attachment. And in fact, we measured it twice, 12 months and 18 months. That was important because we could show that we got some stability. That what we measured wasn't just ephemeral. And then we showed that attachment related to the way the child behaved as a toddler in problem-solving situations and so forth. So we incrementally produced validity for these early attachment assessments and the early assessments of parent sensitivity. Both of those are very important, and we usually combine those when we predict a later outcome. So it was just the beginning to show that attachment assessments could predict later outcomes. We wanted to know a lot more than that. We wanted to know first, why do they? How do they? What happens in the infant when they've had a history of sensitive, responsive care? What does that do for them? It turns out, of course, it does a great deal. And you can look at this at any level you wish. The levels we looked at were the child's expectations about relationships, the child's ability to explore the environment, the child's later empathy, the child's emotion regulation capacity. And bottom line is, of course, all of those are things that you get from the early relationship. The early relationship is like a training ground in emotion regulation. Child starts getting aroused, parent helps them settle. Child starts getting aroused, parent helps them settle. Over and over. This gets entrained in the child, even in the nervous system. And while we didn't directly measure that, people have. Alan Shore, I'm sure most of your audience has heard of, and he's dedicated himself to that. The Romanian orphan studies showed the same thing. Of course, these experiences are mediated by the internal processes of the child. I want to say there's nothing magical here, but of course, it's so totally marvelous, you can call it magical if you want. My colleague Ann Masson refers to some of these things as ordinary magic, and that's a very good term. So we needed to find out that it predicted, but we wanted to know how it did. And since our study was comprehensive, we had measures of emotion regulation, of representation, of interest to people in your group, I imagine. The measures of representation we had were children's uh, problem-solving, children's narratives, projective techniques, drawings, 
sentence completions. We had a whole array of representation measures targeted for the age of the child. At first, of course, we did things like give the child a, a story stem and have them finish it. When they were older, we could actually interview them and we could ask them what makes a friend. What happens if you have an argument with a friend? Will that cause the argument then? So it was tailored age by age. And we were able to see that indeed, quality of attachment experiences predicted the way the child viewed the world. One of my favorite studies was actually done by German colleagues and they enlisted me to assist them in presenting the study since English was not their first language. And this study, which is described in the book in more detail than I'll give now, but these are preschoolers like age five. They're shown a cartoon strip. In the first picture, there's a child building a block tower. In the second picture, another child is walking by. In the third picture, the tower is crumbled on the floor. You ask children, what happened here? Children with secure history say things like, this boy was walking by and he must have accidentally knocked down the tower. He'll help him build it again. Children with especially avoidant attachment histories say, this kid came and knocked down his tower on purpose. There's nothing in the pictures that say that. What you're seeing is inside the child's head. We have countless examples of that. You know, a kid comes into the classroom, he bumps his head, and he goes off into a corner by himself. What are you seeing from the inside of his head? He doesn't expect anyone will help. One child gets injured and another child comes up and pokes them right where they said it hurt. You're seeing in his inner world. Or another child goes running off holding his own mouth. You're seeing his world. It's there was a, there was an example in the book that really struck me of there's like a music oh. kindergarten and the child comes in and asks someone to dance and he re- gets rebuffed. Yeah, it, very similar to what I was saying. He goes off into the corner by himself and just for a long time is just isolated and morose, if I can use that word in a preschooler. Then another child comes in and happens to go up to the same little girl and she turns him down. He just skips on to another person and asks them and they dance happily. And the point of that was there's so many ways to look at it. It's such a great life lesson too. Different responses to rejection. Or did the second child even feel rejected? Did he take it as something personal to him? He did not. And these are the kinds of things that we showed attachment was related to. So in a way, if there are three parts of this story, and I know the third part's the one your audience is most interested in, we've done part one. You can predict things from early attachment. You can predict trust in adult relationships from these infant assessments. The second part is that we know something about why this happens. The second piece of that, it's not just what's in your head. It's what your worldview has you do in subsequent periods of development that perpetuate the pattern. So these children we're talking about that believe in relationships and are curious, they go off to the preschool, they get engaged with the other kids. Why is that so important? That's so important because that's where you learn the give and take of peer relationships. You learn to hang in there even when it's tough. You learn that if you persist, you can work things out and you learn that it's fun doing things with other people. Now you go off to elementary school You know how to do some of this. Now you can deal with the really close relationships that happen among eight and 10-year-olds. 
the chumships, the best girlfriend stuff. Why can you do that? Because you've learned what's in the past. Now, why is that so important? Because that starts setting you up for greater intimacy and trust and loyalty. Loyalty especially is the main legacy of middle childhood peer relations. Learning how to be a loyal friend. A friend is someone who sticks by you. I can't tell you how many kids I heard say that. That's what a good friend is. They'll be with you no matter what. You can count on them. Now, it turns out, I've, I just said that you can predict trust in adult relationships. We can also, in our laboratory assessment of adult couples, we can predict conflict resolution. That is, who's better able to resolve conflicts? We do procedures that encourage them to have conflicts. That's the way social science works. So they have a period of conflicts. And then you have a cool down period. And the question is, who can leave it behind? Who can move on? Who can bring it to some kind of resolution? Is that what we all face in therapy? I mean, how many times have our therapists said to us, you know, both of you are pains in the butt to live with. Anyway, attachment has prepared you for peer relationships. In peer relationships, you learn how to resolve conflicts. That's how attachment is carried forward also. In fact, if we statistically remove peer competence, we have very little prediction of adult conflict resolution. You call that in statistical terms, the peer relations mediated the influence of attachment. They carried it forward. That was the second thing we wanted to know. Well, that's fascinating. I mean, I love like sort of breaking it down like this and I can feel, you know, the cumulative developmental importance. That is exactly it. There's a book on brain development that I like a lot. It's a little technical. It's called Fundamentals of Brain Development. Her name is Joan Stiles. And what she said, she said a phrase that has stuck with me ever since I read it. Development always builds upon itself. It can't do otherwise. You can't undo it. It always builds upon itself. And you can't skip over it. You have no choice. I think in a modern developmental view, the term fixation needs to be replaced. You don't get stuck in a stage. You have no choice. You're going on. But how the next phase of development is faced depends on what happened before. You have to face it. And moreover, in facing it, if you get proper supports, you do have a chance to transform what happened before, to reconstitute it in a new pattern. It's still there. It doesn't go away, but it has different meaning now. Well, that's part of why that later relationships are part of change, I think, right? Because then you have this chance to have these new experiences. And, you know, as they say, it's not what happened to you. It's how, what sense you made of it. And exactly. this is what you're describing is... And so that it's never too late. So if you're listening and you're cringing, yeah. um, either about your own child and what has happened or about yourself and your behavior that you're not real thrilled about, that part of the really stuff I love about this and that we love to share is the hope of it. So internal working model, is that still how you think of it? That was a very important term. It has some connotations that are unfortunate. It sounds a little mechanical and actually Bowlby kind of meant it to be that way. You know, when he started, nobody believed any of this stuff. And so he was pretty careful to put it in terms that were acceptable to the science of his time. And I applaud him for that. But I don't like to think of it as so mechanical. For him, what it meant was you have in your head a model of, if I do this, my caregiver will do that. 
And that's true, but you have more than that too. You have the feelings about yourself as you're doing it and other stuff. So personally, we use the word representation, internal representation. And what we mean by that is what Bowlby meant, but elaborated somewhat. It is your expectations about how relationships work for sure. But one of the things we noted, the reason I like the prediction of empathy as an outcome so well, is because remember, we're predicting from infancy. When you were an infant, you got no practice in being empathic with the other. What you got was the other being empathic toward you. And yet what you learned is that's the way relationships work. You didn't just learn to be a receiver. You learned something basic about relationships. You take all of that forward. So in the preschool, you see the other child injured and you, you see that they're in distress. And what that means to you, oh, they're vulnerable. When one is vulnerable, the other responds. You've learned that too. I think you need something beyond a mechanical model of if I do this, you'll do that to get there. Yeah, totally. No, this is actually, you know, we're very interested in kind of getting it right and updating our thinking and being as accurate as possible. Because also when we turn around and teach it to young therapists and things like that, that we want to really get it accurately. There's nothing wrong with the term. Right, right. And I even asked Bowlby face to face Hmm. because I like the idea of inner working model. I like the definition of working. Oh, it's provisional. No, he didn't mean that. He meant this is the way it works. And I like the notion of provisional. It's clear in his work, he says, these inner models develop and evolve throughout the years of infancy, childhood, and adolescence. So he knew they were subject to change. He just wanted to be precise in his definitions. He was dealing with a lot of skepticism. Mm -hmm. Well, how exciting to be able to ask those kinds of questions directly to him. He was uh, extraordinarily generous to me. I wrote him a letter once when, uh, oh, I think I put this in the book. I was really young, and I admitted in the book how immature I was, really immature. Anyway, when I, I was really young, just starting out in the field, I wrote him a letter about an experience I had. We're on this farm with my three-year-old daughter, just the two of us. I felt more comfortable than when I had been there alone. And I thought, how odd, she can't protect me. But then I thought, this confirms Bowlby's theory because he says being alone is a natural cue to danger as we evolved because when you're alone, you are vulnerable. So I felt less vulnerable because I wasn't alone. So I wrote him a letter. He would have never heard of me. He wrote back handwritten letter. That was so great. How exciting. And uh, the chutzpah of you to write the letter. Um, No, that was that was my immaturity. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look at what your immaturity got you. That's wonderful. Hey, you make a very good point. You learn as you age to look at some of your problems and say, well, you know, there's another side to that problem. I was Mm -hmm. always hyperactive and energetic. Well, I did well in school. I mean, I. And you've gotten a lot done. (laughs) I've gotten a lot done. Yeah. So it's not so bad. Would you say like the way that we've been thinking about it is you first have the biology that is in the body. It starts prenatal where that already things are forming like information processing. Experiences are already happening where that you're learning, not just prenatally, but very, very early on as a teeny baby all the way that, you know, that, that early two year period. And it's that 
bodily experience and how one responds to threat, whether it be, you know what I mean, the different ways that one responds to being scared and whether or not the caregiver is predictably responsive, that then in the strange situation, you're seeing the behavioral outcome of these internalized experiences. Mm -hmm. Would you call that attachment at that point? Would you call those the inner working model? Or does that come a little bit later, like the two to five? No, it's... That's what you would call that. It's there. It's already there. One of the videos I use in my training, one of the segments shows a 12-month-old sitting on the floor playing. Her mother's behind her. She picks up a toy and reaches her hand back over her shoulder, and her mother takes it. She knows her mother's there. She knows her mother will respond. She has an inner working model already. Now, it's not the same that you and I have. Right. She didn't even think. I bet my mother will take this if I hand it. It's just an automatic. That's part of why it's so hard to get to it is because we can't interpret it and you can't point to it. If somebody is not psychologically minded, that will sound crazy because how could it be? But I totally get what you're saying. Even the baby that's not pretending like they're not noticing the mom and they're just doing something else, it's in their body. They're not aware that they're having distress and then working around it. It just, this is just how it's, because they can't think in that, those terms yet. That's, that is true. And I, I'm going to give you a story to support what you just said, but I'm, I'm first going to say something where I, I might be a little unique on how I view this. Oh, good. It has to do with the research that I know about, like with the Romanian orphans and research on babies that were adopted early and so forth. Infants are really well buffered in the first months of life. For example, infants that are adopted in the first few months of life are just as likely to be securely attached as infants who are with birth parents. Infants who are prematurely born, but otherwise healthy, are just as likely to be securely attached. And when you say adopted in the first few months? The studies will take you up to about age six months. Oh, I, wow. I, I, can't do a, I can't do a sharp line. No, no, no. That's, that's just, the, I, just the Romanian, I was thinking like two, you know. The Romanian orphans that were adopted before age six months, the consequences are much less devastating than those who are adopted later. The thing is, it's vague in the middle. If you're not adopted till you're two or so, it's tough. Yeah. We don't have a lot of research in this, but there's an important point here, which is if for reasons beyond your control, you had difficulty during your pregnancy, you were stressed and so forth. Yes, that may impact your newborn, but that can be corrected. And if your baby had to be in the ICU for the first week of its life, it'll be okay. You may not be okay. Exactly. <laughs> I really, really love what you're saying. And, and if you have feeding trouble early on. Exactly. And it gets resolved. Maybe it's very clear from the research that these developmental trajectories, first of all, they can be altered at any age. Mm-hmm. But the longer the trajectory was followed, the harder it is to change. Mm-hmm. Early on, I mean, early intervention is absolutely an important thing to do. The earlier you can get to it, in general, providing help for families, all families, is really important. Our society should really prioritize that. We'd have a lot more healthy citizens. Now, the story I want to say to support your idea that this is somehow in you, we were able to um, bring back the first, oh, I don't know, 
70 children or so that were born in the next generation. And probably actually more than that came back. But when I was working on it, we studied about 70 of them or so. And we used our two-year assessment, which is this tool problem assessment, where the mother and the child are in the room and the child has these problems to solve. And since we had done that when you were a two-year-old, now we're going to look at you with your two-year-old. Is there continuity in what you do? In things like if your parent treated you with hostility, is it predictable, probabilistic that you're more likely to be hostile? If your parent violated boundaries with you, are you going to more likely violate boundaries with your child? And the reason we use the two-year assessment is so we could look at fathers as well as mothers. In the second generation, we're able to study men because they grew up with us, they trust us. Whereas in the previous generation, the men, you know, they didn't know us. And we found this continuity. And what's amazing about that is you don't remember how you were treated when you were two. This is an imitation. And it's clearly not imitation. I mean, boys who violate boundaries with their toddlers don't do what mothers do. So they're not doing what their mother did with them. But they've internalized this relationship view that parents may meet their needs with children, or they've internalized, here's the way relationships work. Here's my little toddler, and he's vulnerable. He's starting to get frustrated. So I'll tease him, because that's the way it works. Now, obviously, maybe the parent continued to tease the child as he grew up, but some of these measures are pretty specific to things that you could only see at age two. Mm -hmm. So are you saying that he wasn't teased he wasn't teased by mom. He might not have been. He had boundaries violated in some way. He was exploited when he was vulnerable. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So you can trust kind of what is in that implicit body reaction. Exactly. Wow. Okay. And I would say what he has represented emotionally. And in fact, my explanation of this would be, it's not that this parent goes around all the time teasing their child or flirting with them or one of the other things that we might see. What happens is when the child's in this situation and starts to become emotional, that brings up these feelings in the adult. It puts them back there emotionally in that situation. That's what's carried forward. So, you know, it works real well when you think about avoidance. What avoidance is about is infants who are chronically, either experience chronic emotional unavailability or are rejected especially when they have a tender need. I reach to be picked up, they turn me away. Anytime I express a tender need, I'm rejected. That leads to what's called avoidant attachment. And how we see that in a strange situation is following the stress of a brief separation, the parent comes back and the child does not go to her. He explicitly avoids her. Now that gets carried forward to the next generation. What does that mean? What happens? What happens is if my child expresses a tender need, for me to acknowledge it, I'd have to get in touch with the fact that my tender needs were never met, and I can't go there. That's the reason it would be carried forward. That's the reason anything is carried forward. You can't verbally remember this, so you can't do it that way. And that's why relationships are the key to change, because in a new relationship, I can have a new experience. I can be right back there. I can be talking to my therapist, and I hit something pretty tender and I want to hold back, but I have this relationship with them. So I come out with it a little bit and they 
help me come out with it. And then I can hear in that context, I can hear them say, that wasn't your fault. That wasn't you. That was in them. Obviously, that doesn't happen in a single therapy session or something. No, but I like also what you're saying is that maybe people before that may have said it wasn't your fault, but because that your defensive system is you know, zipped up, yeah. you're not going to be able to use those kinds of kind resources. That is true. And in addition to which, you're not likely to seek them out. The children with avoidant histories don't tend to congregate with kids and people that want to talk about feelings a lot. Right. It's threatening and they don't know it's threatening. And then when they get good words, big words, they can tell you why that it's dumb or, you know, unreasonable or unrational, <laughs> but there's not. Yeah, with, an, without really getting in touch with it. Without yeah. knowing. Yeah. Exactly. All true. So let's talk about change. Yes. And why it's it. so hard and yet why we can do it. And one reason it's so hard is that these patterns that we could call maladaptive are developed in response to the situation the child finds themselves in. It's reasonable for a child that's been chronically rejected to withhold going to their mother when she comes in because rejection is painful. And not only that, you don't want to further alienate her. And I'm not, I shouldn't have used the word want because it's not that cognitive. You've learned in a way, even though it can't be articulated, you have learned that expressing tender needs to her gets me pain and gets her angry or more distant or something. So you don't do it. And that makes sense. Yeah. It's a healthy strategy in certain circumstances. Exactly. It's a strategy. Exactly. And if you have an abusive parent, it makes sense to develop what's called a disorganized attachment because you can't go to them, but that's your parent. You can't also you know, run away from home when you're 18 months old. It's a solution. Yeah. These are solutions. And of course, everyone generalizes from their experience and takes forward what they've learned as a way of behaving. So when the avoidant child goes into preschool classroom, he doesn't bring his needs to the teacher. So he won't learn that she would respond. And in fact, if she comes and does something nurturing anyway, it's ambiguous or unfathomable to him. What is this? It makes no sense. I think many kids who show behavior problems in early childhood and get punished, they're doing so not because punishment is rewarding, but because this is understandable to them. The world is coherent in its messed up way. And we all take those things forward. So in putting the frame on this change idea, so there's stability, but there's also all this difference. Like at age five, it's a little, you know, and then by adulthood, it's not a perfect correlation. Well, it's not a perfect correlation between any two ages by any means. Some 12-month-old babies who were anxiously attached were secure at 18 months. What we found was, because we were measuring things like support and stress, we found that in the families of the children who changed from anxious to secure, their life stress had gone down much more than the families where the baby was anxious and stayed anxious. Children who were anxiously attached at 18 months but did not have behavior problems in preschool, their parents had much greater social support in the intervening years than where there was continuity. We found change from any two ages, across any two ages, and always we found it was predictable change. I don't mean thoroughly, completely understandable, of course, there's so much going on in every individual life, you can never understand it all. But you can do broad measures 
and show that there is an explanation for change. And always we found that. Now, the most interesting thing happens after you've gone in this for a while. And we describe a study in the book where we defined what we call two groups of children. Both of these groups had substantial behavior problems between ages three and five years. In terms of amount of behavior problems, they were comparable. In terms of just amount of behavior problems, it's only one group. We call them two groups because some of these children had been securely attached as infants. And you say, what? Securely attached and they have problems? Of course, some do. Most of them didn't, but there's no guarantee and stuff happens. Now, the question is, is this one group or two groups? Is their early history erased? They're showing problems. Well, so much for their early history. It's gone. Now they're just as messed up as anybody else. Well, we didn't believe that. How do you know? Well, let's look at them in third grade. Some kids will have gotten over their problems. Who gets over their problems? Much more frequently, kids who had secure attachment histories. So in other words, they hit a bad patch, but they had some potential that they brought with them that helped them recover. That's a classic definition of resiliency. Resilience is like everything else. It's a developmental outcome. Of course, you can call those kids resilient. And in fact, if we'd started our study at age five, you say, oh, some kids got better. Oh, they're resilient. Why'd they get better? Well, because they were resilient. That's not an answer. They got better because they had something inside of them that was still there that when things settled down, they could recover. We did that age by age. And ultimately, we wound up showing the way this gets put is there's a term in people who study transition to adulthood. It's a word for growth opportunities, turning points. That's the word. Opportunities where there can be reorganization. And usually people talk about things like getting married, leaving home, having a child, getting a job. These are opportunities for growth. And in fact, we found that some children who had fairly chronic problems, so-called life persistent conduct disorders, category meaning you had problems in childhood and adolescence. Nonetheless, even with their chronic problems, some remitted their problems in adulthood. It's not a huge number, but some. The same with depression. Some individuals who were depressed in childhood and adolescence recover in adulthood. Okay, one of the things that accounts for that, we're happy to say, those people more often formed a good partnership, adult partnership. And actually, my political science friends like the fact that getting a good job also was a nice thing. But now here's the point about development and how it works. Those people who formed a partnership and remitted their problems, were much more likely to have had a secure attachment in infancy. In other words, you know, the new opportunity came, and they had this stuff inside them. Unfortunately, it works the other way, too. So I could have told you all these findings just in the reverse. Kids that have anxious attachments and then are doing well. So is it gone? Is their early history erased? Have they overcome it? Well, no, they're still more vulnerable. So if they encounter acute stresses, well, one thing they encountered was adolescence. And that knocked a lot of those kids off who had been anxious, then did better in elementary school. Adolescence is tough for those kids in particular. It makes me think too, like launching for college, that like you can be doing pretty well, you've had all your friends for your whole life, and then you get bound, that sort of stressor. You might temporarily regress and get more anxious and get more of the symptoms of it and then settle back out, but that it's sure. more vulnerable. Yep. That makes a lot sure. of sense. In the book, we do track 
a couple of kids who are examples of this. One I like a lot is this kid who started out really well all the first years. I love this kid. Really neat kid. And then everything imaginably bad happened to him. You just, you know, just you name it. He lost everything. Mom, dad, siblings, the works. Well, guess what? He had problems after that. He wasn't immune. Yeah. He wasn't immune. But as an adult, he found a stable partner and is one of the best fathers I ever saw with his toddler. And even all through that time when he was troubled, he was still this sweet person. It was still inside of him. We actually looked in detail what kind of delinquency did he do? What kind of crimes did he commit? Never crimes against people. I mean, yes, he was isolated and alienated and depressed, but he never lost something about relationships are valuable. Like a warm-heartedness or a tender-heartedness, yeah. yeah. Even the, the other kids in our adolescent camp, when they described him, it was so neat. This would be especially the girls, of course, because they were more thoughtful at that age than the boys were. Minnesota boys are kind of nonverbal. <laughs> it's a thing here. You know, yep and sure. Anyway, the girls say things like, you know, he was really quiet and kind of by himself. But, but, you know, when you got to know him, he was really a pretty neat person. I thought, ah, you see, other people can still see he's got it. So he's holding on at some level. He's giving enough yeah. to grab onto. Yeah. Alas, the other side of it is those who are vulnerable still don't quite believe it when people are caring about them. It remains hard. That's really poignant, and I see that quite a bit. Just I want to comment that as you talk about these kids, I can just feel the love and the warmth and just how impactful that, this, that these relationships have been, even on you. Even though I'm, I was outside of them, you know, I'm just like a fly on the wall. But you can't help it when you watch the struggles and the ups and downs of individual lives. So when it comes to therapy, then... You have somebody that has some disruptions? Uh, totally. In fact, I remember my first therapy experience, the therapist said to me, whoa, don't worry. I'm not going to try to break in there. I was so defensive. I saw that guy one time when I was a clinical intern in my internship, you know, <laughs> and, you know, he did a marvelous thing for me. He could have done all kinds of things, but what he did was really make me think, wait a minute. I'm not defensive. I'm just, you know, I just know the data on this therapy crap isn't worth anything. What are you talking about? Anyway, that was cool. But, you know, I've, I've thought about this question a ton because I had lots of problems for lots of years and I'm now definitely better. So how did this happen? And also what happened to my problems? And my answer to that question is I still have the same issues but they're not the same and they don't have the same meaning. Okay, here are two of mine. One of mine is I absolutely cannot directly express anger at somebody I love, like my wife. I can flip off another driver or something, but I can't, I cannot do it. Never could. I'm scared. And anybody who reads my book will know why I am. I came by that honestly. It is not allowed. It was completely taboo. I internalized that taboo. Now, what's the difference? Well, I know I have that taboo. I know a lot of times now, if I'm in a conversation with my wife and I'm getting anxious, that very well means I'm angry and I can look at it. What it's done for me and what it's done for our relationship is 
if you bury your anger, you go around being irritable, resentful, uh, you know, you do things that bug people, it seeps out all over the place. Well, now it doesn't have to do that. And I can say I'm angry to her. It still scares me. And the other one, I, I had great difficulty being emotionally close, totally. And again, I came by that honestly. I had no experience of emotional closeness growing up. So it's really hard. So what's the difference between like PTSD versus avoidant attachment? I wouldn't qualify for PTSD because I don't have the flashbacks and I don't have the preoccupying memories and so forth. But I, I could have. Okay, and here's something about also why I was able to change. First of all, well, my dad wasn't able to love at all when I was a child. So let's move that out. But my mother, I'm sure, did love me. She just couldn't show it. That was a taboo for her. But there were things that were done. I mean, it was very confusing. I never, it was ambiguous. But in fact, there were good things in my childhood. And there were relatives that cared about me in my childhood. And there were teachers that were really helpful with me. And then I had therapists. And then I have my wife now who's great at supporting me <laughs> to get better. So would that be a story of converting from the more avoidant to security? Or would that be a story of having the security that was already there? No, I, w I was not secure. I don't know. You know, these we call these categories, but it's not clear to me whether I was avoidant or resistant or disorganized. It doesn't even matter to me. But I know the models I brought forward. I know how I viewed the world. And it was keep some distance from people. You can have friends and stuff, but you can't really be vulnerable to mm. somebody else. The label doesn't matter. If you can begin to be curious and interested in some of these symptoms as they pop into our adult life. And understand that when there are things that are really difficult for you, you have reasons for that. And the other thing to know is that almost nobody has a history that is all bad. Almost nobody. None of the kids we studied had histories that were all bad. And some of them had pretty bad histories. So they're islands. And that's what I try to tell our nursery school teachers who lamented that you know, they'd spend the week with these kids and then they'd go into the weekend and they'd be all messed up on Monday again. And I told them, what you're doing is important. You're creating an island. And someday some therapist working with this kid will take advantage of that. They won't know it. The kid won't know it. But to some good stuff that's happened has opened a door, a crack. I want to put that on a billboard. I would really love every educator, every daycare provider, it's such a thankless, <laughs> difficult right. work. And it, it's absolutely crucial. And you don't get and to see it. You don't get to see your outcome. We got to write a little paper in a newsletter that went to educators in Minnesota when we had this finding that the securely attached kids, we asked them, we asked everybody, was there ever a teacher that was really behind you, that you knew was really there for you, that was... That you were special to them. Yeah. You know, this is what we asked in this when they were 19. And they could all remember teachers like that because, of course, they were able to go to those teachers. And the anxiously attached kids often couldn't remember a teacher like that. You know, they turn teachers off. That's the other thing. Other lesson is, boy, when a kid makes you feel like you want to go stuff them in a corner, that's kids bringing forward probably an avoidant attachment history. And they really need you to go to them. Go find them. Yep. Yeah. Go sit with them. Yep. 
So this notion then of earned security that everyone loves, or I call it earning security, this doesn't really matter. Kind of what we're saying is it doesn't really matter. It's about making sense of your life story and updating the model into these more accurate, compassionate worldviews and life maps and representations. I really like the concept that word was invented to represent. The term has an unfortunate connotation, which is sort of like, no matter what happened to you, you can pull yourself up. It's almost like resilience was talked about or invulnerability for a while. And the thing is, you can acquire security. I mean, it's a terrible term, adult acquired security. I'll buy that. But what we found in our study was most of the earned secures in our study had secure attachments in infancy. So there was a down payment made. Earned security sounds like you did it by your own work. That's why we love it. (laughs) Well, not to diminish the work you need to do, but none of us are in this alone. You know, I used to think one reason I was so tough in early therapy, I used to think it was cheating to have a therapist. I should be able to do this. Well, that's ridiculous. And, you know, by now I can well say, man, it doesn't matter how good your therapist is. You've got a lot of work to do. <laughs> so how about building security together instead of earned security? But yes, it's, a, it's absolutely the case. And there are studies that have already documented that your attachment representation can change as a result of therapy. No question about it. I am 100% behind the idea that Mary Maine meant when she introduced that term. But it got taken. You know, we talk to people, and you know, when I give talks and I say, well, attachment predicts these outcomes, and they say, well, what about these earned secures? Like as if their attachment didn't matter. Yes, it does. Mm-hmm. Well, and part of what I found so fascinating about this particular paper was from an AAI, from an adult perspective, it did look like that they were earned secure because that they reported these very difficult backgrounds that should have been insecure backgrounds. Not necessarily. First of all, in the adult attachment interview, you only go back to age five or so. Right. Yeah, because you can't go back further than that. And as a developmentalist, that's like going back to the Renaissance and the history of the earth. I mean, you know, the first five years, a lot happens. So, yeah, the earned secures. And the other thing was, we found their lives weren't so bad necessarily, but they were remembering it as bad. And you see, that doesn't mean you're measuring their current construal of the world. And it's a valid thing to say their current construal is that they had a bad time, but they're coming to grips with it. And then they'd be called or insecure. And that's all good. And there are no doubt people, there are no doubt people who had genuine difficult times who are autonomous on the adult attachment interview. I imagine that if I had taken that adult attachment interview any time up till about age, uh, I don't know, 35 or 40, I would not have been autonomous and I'm quite sure I would be now. Well, so is the goal then in therapy to change the attachment representation? I mean, just to use this language, right? The goals, of course, are to just update these models. But I think about Fonagy and mentalization and that if we can learn to behave securely, even if it's not bottom up, if we kind of know how to relate or know to do this or that, that you can learn to create more secure functioning couples without necessarily having to do the five years of therapy to do an internal model change. Oh, oh, sure. 
I mean, you know, and a lot of people change without therapy at all. Is there a but? <laughs> well, the but is ideally we wouldn't be choosing between those options. Ideally, we'd be helping people communicate better. And at the same time, we'd understand that one reason they have their communication problems is the inner assumptions that they're unaware of that are interfering. Like, you know, your partner says something to you and it feels, it feels like a, a threat to you. It wasn't, but it feels like that to you. Now, to simply tell the person, oh, I don't think she meant that as a threat. But still, I mean, cognitive behavior therapy is great. Working with couples on communication is great. With the mentalization and work and stuff like that, you can teach people things that really will improve. Like if you teach an avoidant person to greet and to say goodbye and to, you know, do those they'll, things. They'll start getting different feedback. If I could have magically got those, all the avoidant little children to approach the teacher when they were disappointed or needy, they would have gotten a whole bunch of experiences that, boy, people might respond to you when you do that. And eventually their worldview could change. So if you can help a couple communicate better, and then they can start meeting each other's emotional needs, that'll change their worldviews. So it's, it's, not, it's not that the importance of the inner representation gets obscured when you do some other approach. It's a different avenue towards trying to do this. Yep. I was just thinking about it in the terms of um, some, you know, shorter term therapies. On our first interview, we talked more about the socioeconomic, you know, the more disadvantaged groups versus kind of some of the more privileged, well-to-do groups. Was there anything else you wanted to say about that just real quickly? Because I do want to be inclusive as we're talking about these things. Like, are there differences there? I mean, one of the ways that I think of it is what we said earlier, that strategies are strategies and that there are times when being vigilant is very, like that sure. is your best way. Yeah. Yeah, I think the a current ter term for this is social location. We have to be aware of every person's social location and our own social location. Meaning as a white middle-class man, I have certain ways to see the world that I wouldn't see the same way if I were an inner city black mother raising my children alone. I can't say that we... Uh, had any particular vantage point on those problems in our study. Even though I've written this more personable book, I'm still an academic and I'm hesitant to ever talk about things where I don't know. I mean, you know, obviously we need to get more people of color into the profession. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Right, right. A lot of these kids you study are high-risk kids just in general. Oh, well, they were uh, as high a risk as we could find at the time and Minnesota. There are higher risk kids now. Poverty wasn't very entrenched here in the mid-1970s. So most of our poor mothers didn't come from families of poverty themselves. Whereas now there's intergenerations of poverty, and there always have been in other cities. So as the listener, uh, you know, they have a toddler and they're weeping in fear of messing up their toddler right now. I mean, I just know that because it, when I was at that time, I would read things and immediately think I'm doing everything wrong. Yeah. So I'm just being empathic <laughs> to people that are listening about these long-term effects. You have their ear, you know, if they could just do one or two or three things, where to focus? And also for therapists, like what's the heart of the matter? Try not to worry about it, parents. That's the first thing I say to them. I mean, 
as Winnicott said, all they need is good enough parenting. You know, pay attention to them and look for their, you know, look at what their signals, think about what their signals mean and try to respond to them. Simple as that. Therapist actually is the same thing. What the heck is the person saying when they say that? What does that mean to them? Why did they take what I said that way? <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. We don't just want to clarify. No, that's not what I meant. It's more, more interesting to try to grab that unconscious assumption. And I was thinking for parents, what this is pointing to is for you to look at your own life and to begin to do your own work around how you came to be the person you are today based on where you have come from. And what's really great about it is it's actually, it's not a trauma journey. It doesn't have to be that. It's really about making sense of it and integrating it so that there's not these pockets of dislocated, um, unprocessed experience. As Dan Stern always said, be curious about it. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to go. I've got a yes. date. My, I have a date with my granddaughter. <laughs> okay, well, absolutely. Well, I feel like I've rung you out a little bit, but thank you so much. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Have a good day. You take care. Bye. Bye. Wow, that was a wide-ranging, incredible conversation with an amazing man. I hope you caught some of those details. There was a lot covered and We're just so grateful. Be sure and check out the other episode with him as well. And uh, I think the two together are, you're going to be absolutely in the know about the real story of attachment and how it is predictable and how it is not and how change happens. So if this great content is something that you are interested in helping get out to the world a little more, you know, in a little wider way to not just the choir, please rate and review us on your podcast players. That's part of how people find us. And if you're really into it, we have a Facebook page where people are gathering and continuing this conversation. We have a couple of those, actually. They get a little bit more deep as they go. And if you really would like to join kind of our inner community, we have a Patreon NeuroNerd group. You can find that at patreon.com backslash therapist uncensored. All right. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you around the bin. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson. 